This episode is brought to you through the generous donations of listeners Joe, Iman, David, Chris, Heather, Julie, and Sharon. Thanks to Let's Be Honest, an excellent and engaged group of listeners, I'm able to keep this podcast going. And let's not forget our newest members, Aaron, Eileen, Anthony, Carol, Katie, Lawrence, Lucy, Pamela, Rod, and Virginia. Membership is super cheap, only $2.99 a month. And as thanks for helping me defray the cost of keeping this podcast going, if you become a member, you will receive extra members-only content. For example, right now I'm working on an additional episode on the Celts, which I think should be pretty interesting. And once I figure out how to get WordPress to allow me to do a members-only feed, we're pretty much good to go. And now... Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. I know that I've said that I was going to step away from the great man approach, but it seems that I might have lied. Today, as indicated by the title, we're going to talk about Agricola. Somewhere in northeastern Scotland, at a location the Romans called Mons Graupius, Gnaeus Julius Agricola arrayed his forces to face the 30,000 Caledonians that marched against him. Agricola must have thought of those early days in his career when he served Suetonius and fought against Boudicca. There, he faced much worse odds than what he saw at the foot of Mons Graupius. These long-limbed redheads that resisted Rome like petulant children were no match for him. In fact, he was so dismissive of the Caledonians that Agricola decided he would not even use his legions. He would hold them in reserve and meet them with just his auxiliaries and cavalry. Barely 11,000 men. But we're probably getting a little ahead of ourselves. So let's step back a little bit. It's 78 AD. Gnaeus Julius Agricola is the governor of Britannia, and he has just successfully completed the conquest of Wales. The Druidic College of Anglesey has been destroyed, and the remaining Welsh tribes have been forced into submission through military force and famine. The tribe responsible for wiping out one of the Roman detachments sent into Wales has been exterminated, and immediately the Britons realized they were dealing with one hell of an adversary. Most Roman governors would spend a year touring the territory before doing anything serious, but not Agricola. He took his post and immediately went on a rampage. This could be due to the fact that he was already familiar with Britannia. After all, he had served in the military there. Or it could be that he was just a man of extraordinary energy and initiative. Whatever the reason, the speed of action would have made Caesar smile. And through it, he managed to catch the Britons unaware. So we're still in Agricola's first year, and Wales is broken. And now he's headed north with two columns to deal with the wild and rebellious tribes up there. One column has been tasked with marching to Deva, modern-day Chester, while the other is headed to Aboricum, modern-day York. Now, Brigantium, as we discussed in earlier podcasts, was not unified. Not exactly. Although that isn't too surprising, given the territory that they occupied. The rougher the terrain, after all, the more difficult it is to have a single political body ruling over it. But while the territory wasn't truly unified, it had grouped together under strong leaders in the past, such as Cartamandua and Venutius. I imagine that Rome thought if they could just get rid of the leader, Venutius, that the territory would fall into line. The problem, though, was that Brigantium just wasn't set up that way. The response to Rome's defeat of Venutius was probably something like this. 
So what if Venutius was deposed? He lives leagues from here, and I never knew him. He doesn't speak for me. I have my own voice. And I say I will not serve these foreign invaders. Or something like that. So Agricola knew of the defeat of Venutius. And he knew that Governor Bolanus had still failed to pacify the region despite that victory. So Agricola thought about it, and he came up with a different tactic. Terror. Now, if you look at a map, and I encourage you to do so, unless you're driving, of course. If you're driving, don't look at a map. Safety first. But if you're not driving, look at a map. Now, look at where Chester is, and then look at where York is. Can you see what Agricola had in mind? One column of soldiers would march up the west side of the territory, raiding, burning, and terrorizing the Britons as they made their way to Deva and past Deva, while the other column would march up the east side of the territory, again inflicting maximum damage along the way as they worked their way to Aboricum. The orders given to the legions was to inflict a maximum amount of terror upon the population. This was useful to the governor because while the Brigante all operated as individual villages, essentially, and wouldn't listen to a single leader, he was reasonably certain that they would act in their own self-interest and try to preserve their lives once they faced Roman brutality. So basically, it went down like this. The legions would commit atrocities upon the local population and then encamp nearby. And then the governor would offer reasonable terms of surrender to the village elders. Those villages that had not yet been attacked by Rome no doubt heard of the brutality of the legions, and also likely heard of the comparatively reasonable imposition of laws and taxes, and probably thought, you know, maybe we should just pay our damn taxes. And as you might imagine, it didn't take long before the entire region was demilitarizing and supplicating themselves to Emperor Vespasian. But Emperor Vespasian wouldn't live long enough to see the job done. In June of 79 AD, Vespasian died, and his son, Titus, became emperor. Now before I continue, I should mention the dates. The dates regarding what happened in Britannia are not really exact at this point, though the dates and the Roman events are accurate. So, you know, that's fun. So here's the issue. Tacitus might have fudged the dates of the British events to give a little bit more glory to Titus and less to his brother Domitian. And the general consensus of historians seems to be that he did exactly that, and that the earlier dates I will be mentioning are the more likely to be correct ones. So if I say that an event happened in either 78 or 79 AD, chances are it happened in 78 AD. The reason that's important is because it indicates who was determining policy at the time. So by the end of 78 or 79 AD... Agricola and his legions reached the northern border of Brigantium. He accomplished more than most other governors by doing this. After all, the rebellions in Wales and in the north were dealt with. He was victorious. So now he could head back to Londinium or Camelodunum and just wait for the honors to come rolling in, right? Mm, wrong. See, if he was to stop at the border of Brigantium... All that would ensure is that there be yet another tribe in the north that refused to accept Rome and who would continue to cause problems for the province. And that was unacceptable to the governor. And so he headed north and continued subjugating the tribes he encountered in roughly the same way he had done with the Brigante. 
And as he moved forward, he built an enormous chain of forts to protect his supply train and keep the locals subjugated. Things continued this way for two years, until he reached the Fourth Clyde Isthmus in 80 or 81 AD. And he stopped there. Some historians believe that around this period in time, Agricola engaged in a punitive expedition against the Irish. This is based upon Tacitus saying that Agricola crossed in a ship and defeated a group of people who were unknown to Rome. Most historians believe that this was not Ireland, but instead reflects the fact that he crossed the Isthmus and pushed into Caledonia. But the Ireland theory is an interesting one, especially since it seems to take place within five years of when Tuathal Tectamar, the legendary exiled High King of Ireland, was said to have returned to Ireland at the head of a very large army. Could that army have been Roman? After all, Tacitus talks about how Agricola entertained an exiled king of Ireland and spoke about how a single legion could probably conquer the territory. And Agricola evidently recommended invasion of Ireland to the emperor. And there have been recent archaeological digs that have found Romano-Britain artifacts in Ireland. Not to mention the fact that they had a really good reason to go into Ireland that went well beyond the lust for land and territory. The Irish were raiders at this time, and having a friendly king on the island could have done much to curtail the raiding. So maybe a small group of Romans went into Ireland. It's entirely possible. Or maybe the artifacts were a result of trade, and Agricolus had simply dined with an exiled, and he made a recommendation to the emperor, who was probably Domitian, and that recommendation was ignored, and it went no further than that. The army that Tuathal was said to have brought with him could have been from northern Britannia. After all, his mother was the daughter of a king in Alba, which is now Scotland. So who knows? Maybe it was just a Scottish army that he brought with him, not a Roman one. But it is possible it could have been Roman too. Nobody knows, but it's an interesting theory nonetheless. Anyway, so Agricola had stopped at the Isthmus for a while, had dined with an exile, and then advanced north once again. So why did he stop? Well, it's a short border for one. One that would later be used for the Antonine Wall, the unloved and more ambitious baby brother of Hadrian's Wall. Additionally, the Romans perceived a change in the racial makeup of the tribes they were encountering. So far, they've been dealing with the Brigante and the Maite. But beyond the Fourth Clyde Isthmus were a different group of people who had long limbs and reddish hair, who the Romans called Caledonians. Dio later wrote about them. He spoke of how they would go naked, had no interest in agriculture or even building homes, and how they could hold out for days in all manner of cold and hunger, even in their swampy plains. And curiously, how they were democratic, and also thieves, which I think is a hilarious side note. So maybe this seemed like a good place to hold the line. After all, the Isthmus was a good defensive position, and the tribes of the south had been thoroughly subjugated, while the tribes in the north seemed a little bit nutty. Moreover, the emperor was content. Titus had expanded the empire, and he didn't need to prove himself anymore. The north wasn't exactly the best location for the colonialization, and that's not just because of the naked redheads that Dio complained about, but it was also cold, wet, rocky, and had thistles that grew waist-high. 
not exactly the kind of place you want to wander around in if you're wearing a toga or Roman armor. Things could get a little bit prickly, if you know what I mean. And actually, when you consider the thistle issue and the locals' penchant for nakedness, they don't seem like the kind of people you'd really want to fight. They sound kind of crazy. Or at least incredibly hardy. So long story short, Agricola probably stopped because it was defensible, the people to the north seemed a bit nutty, and the emperor was pleased. But then something happened in the interim. Titus died of a fever in 81 AD, and his brother, Domitian, succeeded him, since Titus only had a daughter and, well, this was Rome and daughters don't count in Rome. So Domitian was the emperor. Big deal. What impact could that possibly have on Agricola's advance? Well, Domitian had some pretty big shoes to fill. His father was a war hero, and both his father and brother had worked to subjugate the island. Domitian didn't want to be a footnote of history. He wanted to make his mark. And what better way to do it than complete the work of his family? After all, Titus failed to complete the conquest. And while deifying his brother, which was Domitian's first act, actually, was a fine tribute what better way to honor his memory than by completing his task that he'd left undone? And probably as a welcome bonus, he could also potentially diminish his brother's memory by doing what his brother failed to do. So Domitian probably was the reason why Agricola marched north. He was probably the one to give the order. And so Agricola marched north, heading east around the coastline of the island and defeating the Maite and the Caledonians as he pushed on. Tacitus writes breathlessly of battles, such as when the Ninth Legion was under assault by the Britons in the middle of the night, and the rescue that followed when the rest of the army arrived. But those were really just skirmishes compared to what was to come. In 83 or 84 AD, at an unknown location, probably near Inverness, called Mons Graupius by the Romans, Agricola forced a battle with the Caledonians. Incidentally, Caledonia was just a term that the Romans gave to basically everything north of the Isthmus. So basically, what we're talking about here are proto-Scots of an unspecified tribe. Now, Tacitus was the source of the information regarding this battle, so it's important to remember that he's writing about his father-in-law, and he probably doesn't want to have to deal with the fallout with his wife if he doesn't, you know, make him look heroic. Consequently, we need to take everything he says with a grain of salt, or maybe a handful of salt. But this is the hand we've been dealt, so let's talk about it. So Tacitus writes of how the whole of the remaining Free Britons were organized to fight against Agricola, resolved on either freedom or death. <laughs> this is rather similar to a certain movie starring an Aussie with an unconvincing Scottish accent. Freedom! Anyway, so Tacitus, in true Roman style, inflates the numbers of the opposition to the point where you have 30,000 Caledonians facing off with 8,000 auxiliaries and 3,000 cavalry. Though we should remember that there were also Roman legions nearby, but they were just held in reserve and not utilized in the fight. Now this alone, by the way, should be enough to cast doubt upon Tacitus' account of the disparity of the forces' strengths. I mean, if there really were 30,000 Caledonians, don't you think he'd want to have his Roman legions actually involved in the fight rather than saying, hey, you guys who you know aren't nearly as well trained as us, uh, you handle it. We're going to be over here eating olives. 
So I find the 30,000 number to be rather suspect. But there must have been substantial numbers nonetheless. But, you know, 30,000 in a land that had already been largely defeated and was rather inhospitable, it just seems a little bit suspect to me. And before I get angry emails from, uh, from people in the Highlands saying that the North is beautiful, I know, it is. I'm not saying that the North isn't beautiful, but there wasn't a lot of farming going on up there, and so it wasn't really hospitable. You couldn't support a huge amount of people in the North. I mean, when you read the Roman accounts, it sounds like people were largely hunter-gatherers, and, you know, you're just not going to have a lot of people. Anyways, let's get back to the story. So as the case with all battles we've spoken about, any time the Britons eschew hit-and-run tactics for a direct engagement, things aren't going to go well. And that's the case here as well. It really would be nice if they learned from their mistakes at some point. So a portion of the Caledonians rushed to engage the Roman auxiliaries. It seems that there was a bit of a misunderstanding, however, and the bulk of the Caledonian army didn't initially realize that a serious battle had begun. They soon rushed to join the fighting, but it was already too late. The combined auxiliary and cavalry attack by the Romans had broken the morale of the Britons, and the army rushing to their aid quickly found themselves being swamped by a bunch of routing troops and then in the middle of a total slaughter. Tacitus says that they killed 10,000 Britons that day and only lost 360 of their own, and most of those were not particularly of any note. But again, there was probably a fair amount of exaggeration there. Regardless, the rebellion was over. Britannia was subjugated, and Agricola was triumphant. And to celebrate this, Agricola sent his fleet to the tip of Britannia, in the North Sea, to see if the island was circumnavigable. Now, if you didn't pay attention in geography class, it might surprise you to find out that, yeah, yeah, Britannia is circumnavigable. Anyway, so we have triumphant Agricola. And here's where history gets a little messy. Agricola the Butcher, Agricola who exterminated a Welsh tribe, Agricola who laid waste to the sacred Druidic island of Mona, Agricola who led a campaign of terror in the west and in the north, later told his son-in-law Tacitus that little is gained by conquest if followed by oppression. And it seems like he meant it. It would be very easy to see Agricola as a one-dimensional caricature, cutting a red swath through the land. But he was also, from all accounts, a fair governor. He reduced the harsh corn tributes that were starving the local population, and he pushed Romanization more effectively than most other governors. He encouraged the building of temples, houses, and courts. He built roads. He provided education for the male children of British nobles. I mean, it wasn't that great. He was, after all, Roman, so he's not going to educate the women. But he did provide education for British children who happened to be lucky enough to be male and rich. And he seemed to prefer the Britons over the Gauls of the mainland, which also seemed to help his popularity with the Britons. He was so effective in his Romanization, that before long, wealthy Britons were wearing togas, though probably not in the north with the thistles, and they were lounging at banquets and congregating at baths, and basically Romanization was in full swing by the end of his governorship. And things would never be the same in Britannia again. 
Now, before we end this podcast, I'd like to point out the July 1st episode of BBC History Magazine podcast. This was shared by listener Keith, and I think it's quite a good listen. The last 10 minutes are with history author Manda Scott, and she speaks about pre-Roman Britannia and the effects of the Roman invasion. Her stance is that essentially all the Romans brought to Britannia was genocide and Christianity. It was a fun episode, and it covers the same period that we've been talking about here. And it was doubly entertaining because the presenter seemed so uncomfortable with Miss Scott's position, so you really should check it out. And here's an unrelated fun fact for the day before I leave you. James I, you know, James I who made the King James Bible, uh, the Union Jack, uh, came up with the name Britain, things like that. That James I. James I was the great, 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 great grandson of Robert the Bruce. Robert the Bruce also happened to star in that same movie starring the Aussie with the bad Scottish accent shouting, Freedom! So so that's a fun little fact I thought I'd share with you. Anyway, so my voice is given out, so we're going to end it here. Uh, If you want to continue the conversation, I encourage you to go over to facebook.com slash British History and join in the conversation there. If you click the like button, you'll get updates on your Facebook, and it's a lot of fun. Or you can head on over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and make comments and, and have a discussion over there. Or you can always email me directly at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening.